white service. If you ask Derek what happened to Mother, he will tell you she never got over the death of Tony. Tony, her youngest, her favorite, and Tony's four-year-old, Mother's only acknowledged grandchild. Such a terrible accident, too, and in front of so many people. The ambulance driver said it was the strangest he had ever seen. The street performer's flock of impeccably trained budgerigars had flown straight into the ice cream van in front of the Tate Modern. The driver had involuntarily accelerated straight into Tony. Then the van had toppled onto the child, whose death was caused not by the weight of the van crushing him, but by asphyxiation. Our nephew had been choked, drowned in effect, by ice cream. Tony was our half-brother. And I have to say, we were never close. By the time he was born, we were already living with Dad. It was that or the social services. Not that there was any cruelty, you understand, but there had been what our school's friends' parents referred to as goings-on. As a child, you accept everything as normal, but looking back, I guess our life with Mother was a bit odd, even for 1970s Earl's Court. The endless parties the procession of strange men and women through the front door of our dilapidated, if roomy, flat on Barkston Gardens. There were the drugs, of course, the nudity, the wild music, and peculiar chanting till the early hours of morning, none of which alone made Mother unique. Once, the residence committee did object to the use to which some of Mother's guests put the communal gardens. Her friends claimed it was a fertility rite, and the goat, part of a ragged menagerie of odd pets, including exotic birds, stray cats, lemurs, and ferrets, didn't seem to mind at the time. Not that fertility seemed much of a problem. <laughs> there were so many other children. Half-brothers and sisters, who knows where from. Sometimes a bearded father or a lank-haired stepmother would turn up with a couple more and dump them on us for a few days. Derek and I would, of course, refuse to talk to them. And then, even stranger, the old ones like the woman who came one Christmas and told me she was my sister. I didn't believe her, as she must have been 30, and I was still in infant school. The day Tony died, Mother was tucking into a late breakfast of her favorite deviled kidneys, liver, and bacon. She was always keen on awful, which I vaguely assumed was something to do with the war. Suddenly, the cockatiel began to screech loudly in its cage, a most piercing sound, and Mother started in surprise, knocking her plate to the floor. This must have been, she told me later, at exactly the moment of Tony's death. She reeled, felt her heart pounding, and fell back into her chair. She knew, she said, that something terrible had happened, and that this was just the start. By the time news had reached Derek and myself, she was already in the Chelsea and Westminster. She had always been a remarkably youthful woman, especially as Derek would disapprovingly observe, giving her far from abstentious lifestyle. She had the skin of a woman in her thirties, and the energy of one even younger, in spite of the cigarettes, the champagne, and God knows what else. But now, suddenly, she had become her age. I had rushed from work, run from South Cantube, charged breathlessly into the appropriate, I thought, Nell Gwen ward, and then couldn't spot her. When I saw Derek sitting at the bedside of an old woman, I went across and nearly asked, Where's Mom? Seeing me approach, Derek jumped up and took my arm to draw me aside. 
His face had a look I'd never seen before. Not fear or anxiety, or even grief. It was a kind of horrible blankness. The face of someone who was using every last drop of mental strength simply to stand and speak. She's in a dreadful state. The shock. She's been raving, saying terrible things. At the word terrible, he winced as though that enforced state of blankness had been punctured for a moment. She's out cold now, though. I asked the doctors to sedate her. I suggested he should get some tea and fresh air and phone his wife, Teresa, and said that I'd take over. He went, I thought, gladly, and I took his seat at the bedside. I wanted to hold her hand, but was scared of disturbing the needle that was inserted in it, attached to a drip. Instead, I just looked. I had never noticed that her skin was so thin, like Japanese paper, so marked and blotted with age spots. Looking at her hand, it was as if I could see more and more and more of those spots, like stars appearing in the evening sky. Suddenly, Mother's voice broke into my reverie. Stephen? It was a hoarse, rasping whisper, but not a feeble one. Mom! I thought I thought you were sedated. Sedated? Huh. Takes more than a drop of morphine to sedate me. I used to put that stuff in my morning coffee. In my mother's case, this may not have been an, an exaggeration. <laughs> she continued. Is Derek gone? Good. We don't have much time. Write this down. It was bizarre. I had expected tearful, whispered exchanges... Promises that she had not been a bad mother, assurances of love, perhaps some confusion, jumbled chimerical recollections or muddy visions of the past. But instead, I found myself like an ill-prepared secretary, hurriedly scribbling notes in the back of my diary with the stubby, blunt pencil that came in its spine. It's the end. Tony was the sign. I knew straight away. He's going to come for me now. I'm scared, Stephen, but I cannot be weak. We have to act fast. There's someone you'll need to ask for help. His name is Mr. V. 134 Lady Somerset Road, Kentish Town. After I'm dead, you must go to him and tell him you need the white service. It's what I want. You mustn't forget that. Or Derek, though he won't like it, of course. You must take me there, to Mr. V. Nowhere else, do you hear? Whatever the cost. And after that, when he's done, what must be done, you're to take me to a church. I don't care which one. And you must watch over my coffin between you three nights and three days. After that, you can bury me. Then it will be safe. Till then, you must watch. You understand? You must watch so that he cannot come for me. It was true what Derek had said. She was clearly very disturbed. This was nonsense. Yet her voice sounded so clear, so commanding that I didn't interrupt. I didn't ask anything. I scribbled on, my mind swimming with confusion as I meekly recorded everything she said. I felt strange, detached, and almost high, like when I had accidentally sniffed Mum's poppers as a child. Two days later, our mother was dead. Just as the mother had predicted, Derek was appalled when I revealed the instructions. Bah, he said. I expect it may be an unusual ashes-scattering request, 
But this? He agreed to find a church, but I went alone to Lady Somerset Road, and was shown by Mrs. V into a sitting room so ordinary it bordered on caricature. Yes, he knew my mother, of course. He knew all her, he chose the word carefully, set. He stressed as well that bespoke services like his were not cheap, so it was fortunate that mother, in spite of her indulgences, had a decent estate. At that point, Mrs. V brought in a tray of two milky tea and asked, What did he choose, dear? The white service, I said, having no idea what it meant. Appropriate, Mr. V nodded. Not always foolproof, of course. I was bewildered by this, but Mr. V smiled and said he would draw up a proper invoice for the service and that my mother's body should be delivered as soon as possible. Then, if I agreed the terms, he would proceed. He elaborated that there was a beautiful workshop upstairs, very well equipped. He then asked me, Have you thought what you might like when the time comes? The full Egyptian is expensive but so elegant. I always think. Mr. V's invoice arrived in the post the next morning. I thought it best not to share it with Derek. It seemed strange, after paying so much, that I skimped on extras like a 42-pound two-line roll of remembrance or a 72-pound memorial plaque. I even queried the plants, but Mr. V insisted that they were essential, as was prompt payment. I was mystified by this, too, as it wasn't as if Mum was going anywhere. Basic service with particular bespoke requirements. Freshly slain stag's hide, 6,250 pounds. Sewing of deceased's body into aforementioned hide, 3,000 pounds. White marble coffin, 9,500 pounds. Shipping grade 10-inch diameter iron chain, 25 yards, 1,750 pounds. Saying of prayers and incantations for the deceased, 850 pounds. Hawthorn spray, times two, six pounds fifty each. Sprig of willow, times four, three pounds fifty each. Sprig of hazel, times four, two pounds fifty each. Total, 21,387 pounds. Meanwhile, Derek, the church-going son who had disappointed mother so much, had managed to persuade his vicar, with the help of a large donation to the Restoration Fund, to allow us exclusive use of the Christ Church Southwark near Blackfriars for three days. It was closed to the public for a fortnight anyway, for restoration to the stained glass. An odd choice, as Mother hadn't crossed the river in living memory, and would certainly have disapproved of the trade union memorial statue to striking print workers in the hall. On the other hand, finding anywhere holy where the presence of a huge sarcophagus wrapped up in chains would not be in the way of ordinary worshippers was a miracle of sorts. We did not contact any of the other half-brothers or sisters, mainly because we had no idea where they were. Just Derek and I sat, one either side of the monstrous coffin, taking turns at fitful sleep, occasionally sipping tea or whiskey from a flask. We did not sing hymns or wear black. There were no flowers. What was inside that awful box? Was Mother even in there at all? Had her body truly been stitched into the bloody hide of some poor animal in the upstairs room of a Victorian terrace in Kentish Town? When I nodded off, I would dream about it, 
and then wake up suddenly, hearing my mother's voice in my ears. It was late into the third night of our vigil. We'd eaten some takeaway brought by Teresa as far as the church door, and drunk whiskey and begun to feel strangely cheerful. Perhaps because we knew our ordeal was nearing its end, the darkness in our hearts seemed to lift a little. We did what people normally do after a funeral, chatted about nothing in particular, shared memories from when we were young, drank a toast. After a while, we began to nod off. Then, suddenly, I awoke to the vilest sound, a high-pitched screeching that penetrated my whole body. The doors at the end of the church were open, and cold air and a brilliant, uncanny white fog poured in through them. I tried to call to Derek, to stand, but as if in a dream I found I could barely move and just managed to turn my head to Derek, who was also awake and trying to mouth something. I looked to the doorway, and there he was, tall as two men, with huge, misshapen antlers on his head. As he approached the coffin, he gave off a stench like rancid meat. Derek was praying. I began to cry. He seized the chains around the coffin and snapped them easily, dragging aside the stone lid. Then I saw my mother take his hand and step out. Her face was illuminated with the most horrible smile. She looked glowing, as young as when we were children. He lifted her out of the sarcophagus and slung her on his back, head downwards, like a butcher with a carcass. Still, the smile shone from her face, though her eyes were blank, and I stared, transfixed by that eerie, beatific smile as he carried her out of the door. He came for her, and he took her. Derek had a stone put up anyway, and he puts flowers there on Sundays after church. He says the people in his prayer group are very supportive. As for me, I kept her cockatiel. I mostly don't go to work anymore. I sleep late, and when I get up I cook liver and bacon, and when I eat it, the tears roll down my face.